0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm in Vermont, a producer of award-winning handmade cheese from goat and cow milk. For more information, visit considerbardwellfarm.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, if you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and today our topic is nothing new, vegetarianism. Now, vegetarians have been around for a long time. Uh, Back in in history, they can be traced from from early times uh, on, and certainly in the Roman times. But in America, there was a movement that was fairly new, and uh, it has a very interesting history. And I have with me today a person who decided to delve into the research of that period of time. We're talking the 19th century primarily, and he has published a new book that's called The Vegetarian Crusade, The Rise of an American Reform Movement, 1817 to 1921. And his name is Adam Spritzen. Adam, welcome.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Adam is a historian primarily of the 19th century. Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but 19th century America. And he is the editor of the Digital Encyclopedia of George Washington at the Mount Vernon Estate, where he works, um, and that's where you're calling from. Is that correct?
3: That is correct. Right.
2: Um, Adam, what made you delve into the vegetarian crusade that the reform movement as you call it in 18 in that 19th century period so I think
3: there were two reasons first was just from a historians perspective and the, the second was was personal um, from a personal standpoint I had actually recently converted to a vegetarian diet uh, at the time that I started my research and I realized kind of quickly that it was something that I had undertaken without really investigating uh, its history in the United States, at least. And I found that to be kind of curious, that, uh, that I would he- adhere to this identity or to this movement without really knowing much of its past, other than sort of a vague notion that it had certainly been around for a long time, um, But my sense of the history of vegetarianism in the United States was certainly linked to um, notions of uh, the 60s and 70s, hippies and communes and things like that. and not really knowing much of its history in the 19th century. Hmm. From a historian's standpoint, um, it it was kind of fortuitous, actually. I read one little line about the history of this movement in the 19th century in this sort of bigger book about uh, reform movements of the time, Uh, and just this very brief mention that made me kind of pause to think that there was a, a story there, and a rather long story. Uh, and one that documented significant change. And I think that that's what most historians are really looking for when they're trying to sink their teeth into a topic, is to be able to document change. And Mm -hmm. this story of the 19th century is one uh, where vegetarians go from being a tiny little group of literally 40 some odd immigrants that come to the United States in 1817 to grow into probably the millions by the uh, 20th century, and mm-hmm. that's a very significant change.
2: Indeed, um, and as I say, there certainly, you know, vegetarians existed, but not as a group, not as a movement, not as as necessarily um, in the United States, that is, in particular.
3: Exactly, yeah, and one of the challenges, I think, in, in writing the book initially was figuring out who to focus on? Uh, because, as you mentioned, there were certainly individuals who abstained from meat uh, previous to the 18th century—sorry, uh, previous to the 19th century—and into the 18th century. Mm-hmm. But they weren't part of this larger process of building um, a countrywide community, and that's what the book really focuses on: is how this community is built and how they define what it means to be a vegetarian at different times during the time period.
2: Well, this period, this time period that you keep referring to—I mean, it was it was a very extremist kind of period in our history <laughs> anyway and you i mean you say the american reform movement well there were reforms going on all over the place and this was just yet another one that kind of tied its uh you know its its strings to other groups as well talk a little bit about the period
3: absolutely i think that uh you know the 19th century we tend to uh view it in somewhat inaccurate terms when we throw around sort of the the, the terminology of victorianism and uh The 19th century actually has a lot going on in terms of not just reform, but um, people kind of toying with the ideas of how to best live the good life. And certainly that could range from uh, things like abstaining from alcohol all the way to um, re-understanding sexual relationships, so the free love movement pops up during the 19th century. And it's almost only natural that people turn their attention to also try to think about diet and to figure out what the implications of a meat-heavy diet were. Mm. And that's in health terms, but also in terms of sort of the social implications of what your dietary choices were.
2: Right. Well, um, tell, well Brink, let's go back. You, you mentioned that there were some immigrants, a few, a little pocket of, of religious immigrants. Uh, tell me a little bit about that.
3: Absolutely. So the first group of uh, meat abstainers that come to the United States that forms sort of the, the base of this vegetarian movement are members of the Bible Christian Church who come from England in 1817, arrive on the shores of Philadelphia with just 41 followers, and actually even in the process of coming across... Uh, the Atlantic, uh, some of their followers kind of give in even on the boat and start eating meat just out of necessity. So certainly not a fortuitous start for that movement, but very quickly the Bible Christians grow within Philadelphia's religious reform community, and they're fairly controversial for a few reasons. First off, they doubt uh, the divinity of Jesus Christ. They see Jesus as being a historical figure, uh, more of a teacher and a prophet. And then they make this claim on top of it all that Jesus was a vegetarian and that any claims to the contrary were mistranslations in biblical stories. So Bible Christians are met with kind of these harsh calls of heresy and apostasy walking down the streets of Philadelphia, uh, but their message does start to appeal uh, to the area's reform-minded religious individuals. Uh, Part of that, I think, is because they give this emphasis on the notion that uh, religion can be understood through scientific study, that revelation can actually be understood by observing surroundings, by observing uh, environment, and certainly by observing dietary practices. So they're abstaining from meat and they're also, of course, uh, abstaining from alcohol, thinking that these uh, stimulants cause people to make immoral and ultimately destructive choices, ranging from the personal of not being able to uh, succeed socially, over to even these big sort of uh, challenges facing the republic, that the idea that only in a society where people are vicious enough to eat meat could people own slaves.
2: Mm, well, that was just going to say when, when, you know, that suddenly then we see a lot of politicized roots being attached to this movement as well. You mentioned um, alcohol, so there was the temperance movement was was gaining some traction. And certainly the anti-slavery, the abolitionists were, you know, were, uh, were building steam. So there were a lot of things going on um, at this time.
3: Absolutely, and that really culminates uh, as vegetarianism evolves, so it brings in not only the Bible Christians, but these original followers of Sylvester Graham, known as Grahamites. And uh, we know Graham somewhat inaccurately in our popular consciousness as the uh, inventor of the, the graham cracker, though that's not really true. Uh, he invented graham bread, which was stale, unbolted wheat bread that was meant to sit for 24 hours before consumption. Um,
2: Feeling it had, and, better, had, had, had better nutritional value. If exactly. Since it yeah, was such a idea. big part of the diet. It was a big part
3: Absolutely. of the diet. Absolutely. Absolutely. The idea was that uh, by bolting the wheat, that it was basically taking away all the nutrition from uh, from bread. Uh, so the followers of, of Graham, these Grammites, as well as the Bible Christians and a few other uh, meat-abstaining groups, end up forming the first National Vegetarian organization in the United States, the American Vegetarian Society, and this is in 1850. And the group really codifies the notion that vegetarianism isn't only connected to uh, social reform, but they actually make the pretty bold claim that vegetarianism is and should be the center of all reform. Hmm. So that by adhering to a vegetarian diet, uh, individuals could basically create a groundswell that would not only liberate the slaves... Um, create economic, economic equality but also uh, end wars and uh, liberate women from the kitchen essentially so it is seen as a very kind of centralized reform role that can um, provide uh, provide material uh, improvement for society at large
2: right and, and by the same token it you can understand why it was looked upon as uh, a bit of fanaticism as well. Um, if they were you know I know they were met with a lot of mockery and a lot of hostility um, looked upon as fanatics in because they were proselytizing often too right?
3: absolutely and part of that is. Uh, certainly a, a stylistic problem that vegetarians were very preachy. Um, they made these grandiose claims that uh, after giving up meat and drink and spices and even things like coffee and tea that you know the light of providence shined upon them and all of a sudden the world was a better place. Now, uh, maybe that was true on a personal level, but we can understand why that would maybe rub people the wrong way who aren't involved in the diet. But on the other hand... Um, the types of attacks that vegetarians faced during the time period were remarkable in their harshness, and I think that, that the reason why is precisely because they were connected to these other radicalized reform movements. Mm-hmm. So popular images of vegetarians during the time period as uh, in the mid-19th century present them as being incredibly sort of weakened figures, um, very kind of shallow eyes, balding, um, weak, sickly looking individuals, um, and that becomes the image of the vegetarian during the, the time period. Mentally, they're supposed to be not so sharp within popular culture, so that's what pops up in newspapers. Um, and the response is pretty harsh, and part of this is also, uh, I think, uh, reflective of culinary culture as well during a time period where. Uh, not only meat consumption, but meat production is, is increasing during the middle of the 19th century.
2: All right. I mean, he, they, it was a threat to, to the well-being and the livelihood of, of a lot of other people. So, Absolutely.
3: Um, um. It, one of the, the funnier uh, stories co- connected to, to to Sylvester Graham in the 1830s is that he's giving these lectures uh, throughout the Northeast, uh, one of which in Boston uh, basically is responded to by local individuals with a, by a riot, um, some of whom are local bakers that are very upset at Graham's uh, uh, supposed expertise on bread baking. Huh.
2: Well, what and, and concerns, and Graham was, was a very important figure in, um, in that movement, I understand, and also in, well, basically in the development of, of diets and uh, baking and flours. What about the nutritional education of these early movements? Is there, did you uncover anything in that regard? That's a,
3: that's a great question. I, you know, I think that one of the shifts that occurs, say, just after Sylvester Graham is that by the 1840s, Vegetarianism, or it's not really called vegetarianism by by that point. So we can yeah, say if there's meat any, abstention. Right, if there's anything
2: <laughs> new, it's the word. <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that the word doesn't become popularized until 1850, really. Um, but by the 1840s, medical experts really start to hop onto uh, meat abstention as a cause, and part of that is the same arguments in terms of social welfare um, as well as economics. But they do start making these health related arguments. These um, the physiologists, the American Physiological Society is one of the big organizations. Um, And the main driver behind this physiological movement to support meat abstention is William Alcott, who's a distant cousin of Louisa May's. Um, Mm -hmm. And Alcott is a trained physician, and he's really the first prominent figure uh, to make that really sort of substantive argument uh, that vegetarianism is beneficial to individuals, mostly because meat was frequently tainted. So his arguments aren't necessarily inaccurate.
2: All right. I'm sorry, like people drinking um, whiskey and, and beer. And it had nothing to do with alcoholism. It had to do with the water was tainted. I mean, so exactly, it, it was exactly. a similar thing. I mean, I, I, my que- I question the, you know, the education, nutritional education, because certainly, few people knew about the building blocks of proteins, about the amino acids. They, you know, what foods were beneficial because you do, you know, you need protein in your blood, and, and yet, um, these diets were were healthy, and they were and they were surviving, and they were doing well.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's so they, they may have had a, an inkling of uh, of some truth to their argument, even if they ne- didn't necessarily understand what was the underlying principles.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, there are a lot of, of well-known names attached to, if not necessarily the movement, um, attached to vegetarians, those being vegetarians themselves, and I refer to people like Horace Greeley, uh, and then of course we come to Kellogg. Kellogg was huge in the movement. But before we get to talking about some of those people, I wanted to mention the um, the American Vegetarian Society. Talk a little bit about how this it it was the co. I guess this was the coalescing um, movement.
3: Yeah, the ABS, which which pops up in 1850, uh, is, is essentially joining together all the individuals and groups that had previously preached in favor of abstaining from meat. Uh, the group comes to define what it means to be a vegetarian in the United States at that time period and just e- even popularizes the term. Um, part of that is a, a response to uh, actually going on in England, where they had just recently, I believe in 1848, somewhere around that time, had open their own first uh, national vegetarian organization. Now, the Americans, interestingly enough, through the AVS, define vegetarianism as being abstaining from materials that are caused by death, suffering, basically anything that's creating blood and violence. So this allows the AVS to basically be accepting of individuals who are uh, utilizing dairy products as well as eggs. And this is different from the English, who, uh, whose vegetarianism of the time period is more reflective of what we would consider to be veganism today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an interesting little wrinkle that the, that the Americans bring to the, the conversation. Uh, but the ABS lasts for about 12 years, has their annual meetings, uh, many of which actually begin in New York uh, for the first five or six years, and then it uh, shifts into Philadelphia after that. Um, and at these meetings, not only are they giving speeches, Um, and creating a sense of community of these previously somewhat disparate groups. But they're actively undertaking a process of defining what it means to be a vegetarian in the United States. So really emphasizing the notion that the diet is the center of all social reform, uh, but then also trying to break through the boundaries to the general public. So the organization starts publishing a... Monthly uh, periodical, the American Vegetarian and Health Journal, that has its reach actually throughout the United States into the South, um, and the organization stays pretty active and somewhat popular for twelve years until uh, eighteen sixty-two.
2: Hmm. Well, the the reaction to a lot of this was um, was so, as you say, the the vegetarian discontents. <laughs> the The reaction was so um, so volatile, vile, and uh, that their Vanity Fair published, you have a, the cover of your book is a very cute illustration, <laughs> not cute at the time, of all these turnips and 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 carrots attacking um, a human being. And who is he supposed to be? I don't, I'm not sure if he is um, representative of somebody in particular
3: yeah he's he's sort of the generic vegetarian but uh interestingly i mean that's kind of the the image or similar images of a vegetarian pops up um throughout uh the popular press of the time period so uh while while he is just kind of generic, he is very representative of the types of images that are that are being portrayed and it, it really is remarkable how vitriolic uh the response to vegetarians are. But on the other hand, from a historical standpoint, this is kind of a time period of really intense masculinity, especially within uh, urban settings. So men are uh, out doing what are considered to be manly things, drinking, Um, dining culture is certainly part of that, Um, commercial sex districts in cities. This is a a time of kind of hyper-masculinity, and... Vegetarians are seen to be basically as the antithesis of the hyper-masculine uh, man.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the continuation of this movement and some comparisons to modern day. Stay tuned.
3: You are listening to Snickers by Obesity on the Heritage Radio Network dot ORG
1: Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Today's program has
3: been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm spanning the rolling hills of Vermont's Champlain Valley and easternmost Washington County, New York. 300-acre Consider Bardwell Farm was the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont founded in 1864 by Consider Stebbins Bardwell himself. Rotational grazing on pesticide-free and fertilizer-free pastures produces the sweetest milk and the tastiest cheese. All of their cheeses are aged on the farm in their extensive system of caves. Consider Bardwell Farm is also a big supporter of Heritage Foods USA's No Goat Left Behind program. No Goat Left Behind is a serious effort launched in 2011 by Heritage Foods USA, designed to introduce goat meat to American diners and provide a sustainable end market for dairy animals. For more information, please visit
2: www.considerbardwellfarm.com. Well... (laughs) I couldn't think of a better commercial break to have, right? It's sort of a antithesis of everything we've been talking about here. I think
3: um, that the, the old vegetarians would have seen that as being pretty providential.
2: Right. <laughs> I am speaking with Adam Sprinson, and he is the author of The Vegetarian Crusade, The Rise of an American Reform Movement. Adam, um, we I, I actually brought up um, the name uh, Kellogg, Robert Kellogg. So I he was, um, he was a... a big activist we know in a lot of um, health movements and and certainly had his um, his due in the vegetarian movement as well. Um, tell us a little bit about what was going on there in Battle Creek.
3: Absolutely. So Kellogg's uh, Battle Creek Sanitarium becomes sort of this fulcrum of uh, vegetarian activity in the late uh, 19th century. Um and the Battle Creek Sand was a, play, it was a resort, essentially, where people went um, to be healed of sort of their chronic, uh, chronic ailments, um, things ranging from dietary issues, so stomach issues, um, even to kind of uh, needing physical therapy for um, aches and pains and things like that. But the, and the treatment varied depending on what you were going to the sand for. Now the one thing that was constant at the sanitarium was a vegetarian diet. Uh, Kellogg himself was a seventh day adventist um, and had long been exposed to uh, vegetarianism and practiced it himself so he made this a central part of the vegeta- of the uh, the sands experience. Hmm. What's really interesting about Kellogg in terms of his connection to the vegetarian movement is that he essentially invents a new form of culinary culture for vegetarians Uh uh, by creating a series of meat substitutes starting in the uh, late 1880s. The most famous of these becomes a product known as Protose, uh, which was uh, very popular well into the 20th century. Um, And it was a product that was literally marketed as being vegetable meat. Uh, it certainly sounds like an anachronism, uh, but it, it changes the ways in which vegetarians have a relationship with their food. Whereas previously, vegetarians ate sort of plain, um, you know, almost bland types of, uh, types of foods, but they were certainly closer to their original form. So they would eat things like boiled cabbage and boiled potatoes, and, you know, maybe this is part of the reason why people responded so negatively to vegetarians. <laughs> um, so Kellogg's inventions, these meat substitutes, uh, really changed the flavors and even the, the uh, conceptualization of food. So Kellogg basically believes that uh, you can actually improve upon the qualities, the positive qualities of meat in what he would refer to as its blood-building properties, which is essentially protein. Uh, and, and this is a this is a huge shift. Previous vegetarians assailed every single quality of meat, uh, whereas Kellogg uh, saw that meat had positive aspects, or at least perceived positive aspects, and tried to capitalize on this, because after all, he was looking to make a profit. And uh, he invents this series of, of meat substitutes in order to uh, draw people to Battle Creek, but then also to have his products reach people once their stays have ended. So mail order becomes a a uh, significant way in which these meat substitutes are sent throughout the United States, but then they're also sold at uh, health food stores uh, throughout the throughout the uh, uh, urban environs in the right. United States.
2: Not unlike, you know, the movement we saw in the 60s and 70s with tempeh and, and uh, the other, you know, mate, the fake meat meat substitutes. People felt they had to have a meat substitute rather than just um have a vegetarian diet. It's, it's very interesting. Well the A V S then sort of dissolved and the vegetarian movement kind of dis- well no, well after the Chicago uh we didn't talk you know touch on Chicago. Chicago became a real center for vegetarianism after the World's Fair, did it
1: not?
3: Yes, it did. So uh the in the late eighteen eighties, eighteen eighty eight the uh Vegetarianism gets its next great sort of national movement, which is the Vegetarian Society of America, uh, that's started by a somewhat lost member of, uh, uh, someone who's lost to history until now, I think, uh, Henry S. Club, who was a former member of, actually, the American Vegetarian Society. And Club starts this new national organization uh, that really takes off in 1893 by having an active role at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago and this is kind of hot on the heels of vegetarianism already becoming popular because of these developments in Battle Creek and the the VSA the Vegetarian Society of America takes kind of the next logical though different step where they make the proclamation that vegetarianism uh is a way for individuals to succeed so whereas The previous generation of vegetarians looked at the diet as the center of social reform essentially for everybody else, um, a way to make society better at large. This new generation of vegetarians connected to the VSA are being brought into the fold because they're being promised the diet as a way to create certainly personal health. But then also, that personal health will make an individual a productive and successful member of society.
2: So it's your so road, it's, magic road to success, right?
3: <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's it's. I, I think I use the, the phrase, you know, health and happiness in a can, and uh, that's kind of the promise that vegetarians are given in this new, very sort of consumptive culture that pops up at the end of the the 19th century. That says, if we're buying new products, that it will bring us happiness and hmm. and success.
2: Well, then you you mentioned. That the um, you didn't find much written about the movement after what the uh, the mid 19th uh, century sort of fades away, and yet vegetarianism does not go away, but the um, that fervent um, adherence to a movement or to a cause sort of fades away. Yeah,
3: it's, it's I, I think that's right. And it's in one way, I think that speaks to the success of the movement that uh, it's the success of the movement during the 19th and early 20th century that vegetarianism, vegetarianism is now sort of amongst a marketplace of ideas that people think about it and they choose whether they're going to be a vegetarian or not. Whereas if you were trying to make this decision in the 1850s, there were other implications to your choice. There was a good chance that you could be shouted out in the shouted at in the streets, made fun of, things like that. And you know, certainly that still does happen to vegetarians uh from time to time, uh but not on the sort of systematic level that it would have occurred in the 19th century. So, in a way, I think it really does measure the success of the movement in bringing vegetarianism to the masses, that it's now an idea that is, at least within the spectrum of accepted possibilities, that there isn't a need for a movement, in so much for people to choose to become vegetarians, and then also to be able to have that support uh, to practice that lifestyle safely.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, because then it, we know that it continues. We know people, you know, were vegetarians and abstained from from eating meat throughout um, the centuries or uh, in the decades. Um, but then it you know once again it rises in the 60s and 70s, early 70s you say the hippie movement people going back to the earth and you know um, shunning meat and the killing of animals and it becomes a pacifist thing and that's what i wanted to touch on that i see these waves of things sort of coinciding with Periods of war as well, and there's no doubt that the you know the the hippie movements were you know periods as I said before of pacifism, pacifism, and um, and in the 1850s we had the you know just coming off the end of the Revolutionary War and then the Civil War building up. What do you make of that?
3: I think that's a great point, and and one that I'm actually kind of keen to study uh, at some point moving forward, uh, because I think there is a relationship there. And uh, for the vegetarians in the 19th century, uh, certainly uh, past the revolutionary generation, and then into um, you know the AVS pops up pretty soon after we've fought a war uh, with Mexico, Uh, and it's in light of, of course, the coming of the Civil War. So violence is very much on individuals' minds, and for the vegetarians, they're looking for ways to try to avoid violence at at all costs. Uh, Though, interestingly, uh, many of them end up becoming involved in the Civil War anyway, and this is somewhat philosophically problematic for a movement that was very pacifistic. Uh, But I I think that if at some point someone, and maybe this will be my second book, uh, knock on wood, uh, would track sort of the long haul of vegetarianism, I think that there's these interesting kind of Mentions, that there's a movement in response to social conditions, and then those social conditions go away, so the movement itself kind of goes away. Um, and I think that's what happens into the 20th century. Uh, but what I also think is happening, say, from the 60s forward until now, is that you see a wonderful expression of uh the history of the 19th century of vegetarianism. So there is the social reform connection of the hippies of the 60s and 70s. Um, They're practicing vegetarianism on communes. In the 19th century, there's attempts for vegetarians to build these uh, communities of vegetarians uh, for very politicized reasons, especially to end slavery. All the way up till today, where we see Vegetarianism is marketed in a very sort of personalized way. So we often hear about what celebrities are vegetarians, mm-hmm. what bodybuilders and athletes are vegetarians, and that's something that is contributed to the movement in the late 19th century by the Vegetarian Society of America and Kellogg. Is this notion that uh, vegetarianism builds kind of social worth?
2: Hmm. Interesting. And today it seems that it is we are kind of living together more easily and peacefully those who are meat eaters and those who are vegetarians and it's it doesn't become this this you know this rivalry or this chasm of, of philosophies necessarily it's sort of like eh, okay well, that's your choice that's what you do um, it seems to be an easier environment for everyone to live in but we are also um, you know that the whole violence thing and, and coming off of wars and killing I mean there's this whole movement of of um, uh, those who do eat meat and those who who deal with the growing and and slaughtering of meat, the the humane treatment of of um, the beef and the meat and the pork, and um, yes. and I think that's a very interesting. That's a very interesting movement that kind of kind of parallels this whole thing.
1: And I,
3: it, it really is. And you know, I think that um, one of the things that really surprised me in my research of vegetarianism uh, and its history is that the notion of vegetarianism being connected to animal rights is a very recent phenomena. Hmm. So in the 19th century and early 20th century, there isn't really much of a consideration of the animals themselves, which sounds completely bizarre. Hmm. Uh, but within the context of the reasons why people are becoming vegetarians, it does somewhat it, at least make sense or fall within that um, sort of line of thinking. Um, but it is strange, especially because the the notion of animal protection pops up during the same time period. In the late 1860s, the ASPCA is formed. Uh, but I didn't see much convergence between that movement and the vegetarians.
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think I think um, I will continue to adhere to everything in moderation and uh, <laughs> I'll stick to my meatless Mondays And <laughs> um, but I think that I think there is room for everything in this world and I and this has been a, a real revelation for me to you know to read it to understand the whole reform movement um, ties to something that is a lifestyle and, and a diet and I wish you all the luck in the world with this book and it was a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for sharing your time
3: thank you so much I really appreciate it
2: again you've been listening to A Taste of the Past and I've been speaking with Adam Schnitzel I'm sorry Spritzen and his book is The Vegetarian Crusade The Rise of an American Reform Movement you've been listening to A Taste of the Past I'm your host Linda Palaccio (laughs)